Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. Good morning, everyone. We are continuing the series, Why the Bible Matters. Last week was part number one. This week is part number two. And our theme verse comes from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, where the text says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Last week, we developed the idea of sola scriptura, which is a Latin phrase engineered by the reformers of the Protestant Reformation. Sola Scriptura speaks to the simple idea that Scripture alone, or the Bible alone, is sufficient to instruct us on all spiritual matters. Scripture alone points the reality that the Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God, that the Bible is true, but not only that, the Bible contains supreme truth, the apex of truth, so that the Bible is the supreme authority on all spiritual matters. We ended last week by analyzing how we actually apply that maxim of Sola Scriptura to everyday life. And we're going to conclude today by going through three more examples. So, I know I myself have met, have met individuals who tell me something like, there are parts of the Bible that no longer apply to us. There are parts of the Bible that I can no longer pay attention to. But when we take that statement, there are parts of the Bible that no longer apply to us, and we realize what 2 Timothy 3.16 says, that all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. What we soon realize is that if it's in the Bible, that means it's scripture. And if it's scripture, that means it's profitable to us. Now let me clarify my answer to the question. If someone were to say there are parts of the Bible that no longer apply to us, technically speaking, there is one part of the Old Testament that does not apply to us because it's been fulfilled. What I mean by that is this. When we go back now to the Old Testament and talk about the Mosaic Law, the law can be divided into three parts. The ceremonial law, the civil law, and the moral law. The ceremonial law describes what type of sacrifice an ancient Israelite or an ancient Hebrew would provide in the tabernacle or in the temple to make an atonement for sin. The civil law refers to how the theocratic Israelite society was to be run. Like, for example, giving guidelines and the responsibilities of office for the king that would rule over Israel. So that's the ceremonial and then the civil law. And then you have the moral components of the law as in the thou shalt or the thou shalt not, that thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not covet. When we now talk about the ceremonial law, 
like in the book of Leviticus, for example, when the text gives us instructions on what qualifies as a burnt offering. The ceremonial law no longer applies to us because Jesus Christ has now fulfilled the law and he has provided himself as the final, ultimate, timeless sacrifice to atone for all sins. But here's the catch, beloved. The reason why we know the ceremonial law has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ isn't because we made that decision. It's because the Bible told us so. And in the New Testament now, in the book of Hebrews, that book overall tells us about the supremacy of Christ in how Christ is supreme and reigns over all of the Old Testament covenants and how Christ is now our great high priest who continually mediates for us. When we look back now to the civil law in the Old Testament, we realize that the church of God is borderless, is tribeless, and God no longer has a biological people confined to a finite geographical area. But we can still look at the civil law in the Old Testament and gain insight and guidelines into how we are to structure and order society. And then we now look at the moral law, like the Ten Commandments. Those apply to every individual, whether they're saved or not, everywhere all the time. So that was a very long way of answering the question, if you or I were to ever meet someone that says there are parts of the Bible that no longer apply to us. Technically, they're right. Technically, in the Old Testament, talking about the ceremonial law, those don't apply to us. And if someone were to go to a temple and offer an animal sacrifice to atone for sin, that's now actually blasphemy. Because that act now essentially degrades the sufficiency of the atonement of Christ. But now that we have the complete revelation of God's word to us, we can still now look back post-Christ, post-the-cross, and look back to the ceremonial law and realize that even back then, the ceremonial law was never, was never adequate. It was always something that had to be done over and over and over again each and every time someone committed a sin and therefore needed an atonement. So the lack of sufficiency of the ceremonial law points forward now to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. The frustration caused by the ceremonial law, where each and every time an, individ an individual committed a sin was required to now go to make a sacrifice to atone, that now points to the reality that the ceremonial law in and of itself frustrated people. It realized the futility of us atoning for ourselves, which again points forward to Christ. So the reason why the ceremonial law no longer applies to us is because it's been fulfilled in Christ, but we can still look back now on the ceremonial law and it's profitable to us because it's still scripture because the ceremonial law points us forward to Jesus Christ. Calvinism, beloved, generally recognizes three uses of the law. That the law is going to be a mirror the law is going to be a curb, and the law is going to be our guide. The law being a mirror simply means God revealed 
his law to us. So when we now study and examine God's law, we get a reflection, we get a picture of the character and the righteousness of God. Because a God who is holy and a God who is righteous reveals a law to us which is now holy and righteous. So by looking and studying the law, the law is not a means of salvation. We don't follow rules in order to increase our sitting with God, but rather we study it now to get a better understanding and a picture of our Maker. The law also serves as a curb, meaning when the law says thou shall not, what we are expected to do is thou shall not. And now it curbs, it restrains, it hinders evil by having something objective that says this is what you ought not to do. The law also serves as a guide, meaning what? That any individual can now look at the moral law in the Old Testament and say, how does God want me to structure my life? How can I walk in a path of godliness in my life now that I know Jesus Christ has redeemed me, now that I know I love my Lord, now that I know I want to freely with my Christian liberty serve my precious Lord and Savior and do what my Father wills. And in that sense now, the moral law of the Old Testament serves as a guide. Now, if you ever were to meet someone who says something like, there are parts of the New Testament that no longer apply to us, my initial question to them would be, how did you arrive at that conclusion? Because what God tells me is that 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. So is it scripture? Because if it is scripture, it is now inspired by God and profitable to us, meaning we have to sit under it, not stand over it, and we have to allow God's word to speak to us. Each and every time, speaking personally now, each and every time I have met with someone who has told me there are parts of the New Testament that no longer apply to them, in essence, what they were really saying is that they didn't want what the text said to apply to them. And so they rationalize that desire by saying the text no longer applies to me. I'll give you an example. In the last several months, there was a particular individual who told me their thoughts on sin. And this particular individual said that we are not sinners. And I was shocked by that revelation because the Bible tells us time and time again that we are sinners, that is why we need a savior. For Paul himself even says, I am the chief or I am the worst of all sinners. So when this person told me their theological belief, my question was, how did you come to that conclusion? How did you arrive at the synopsis that Christians are no longer sinners? And I pointed them to 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 to 10, where the text says the following. Let's turn there. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 to 10. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 
if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him, God, a liar, and his word is not in us. Now remember, this particular individual said, we are not sinners. I then said, how did you come to that conclusion and ask them what they made of what the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 to 10? Their response was that what John wrote in his epistle no longer applies to us. And I said, how did you come to that conclusion? And they said, this was an epistle, this was a letter that was written to unbelievers and as a result it no long it doesn't apply to Christians so you see the danger now church if we in our hearts don't want God's word to apply to us we can begin rationalizing and creating our own theories that dismisses God's word being relevant to us each and every day regardless of culture time or error in every aspect of our Christian lives. At the end of the day, church, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, you have Scripture, and we live by the maxim sola scriptura, meaning that all Scripture is inspired by God and is therefore profitable to us. Okay, here's our next application. You may come at a decision point in your life where you have to discern if a church is a godly one. And the question we now have to consider is, how can we tell if a ministry is a godly church? How can we tell if a ministry is following in the path of God's truth? Now, there's a way culture determines the answer to that question, and then, and then there's a way the Bible tells us how we decide. Here's how culture decides whether a church is successful or not, whether a minister is blessed, whether a ministry is blessed. They look at things. They use worldly gauges in order to determine if a church is blessed. They look at the number of people. They, they look at their finances to see how profitable the church is. They see how nice and how new the building looks. They determine them by the quality and the emotional zeal imparted to a congregant during a worship service. They look to see if this particular ministry is on radio, TV, and how big and popular they are. And all the things that I just mentioned, there's nothing inherently wrong with any of it. But when we now are Christians living by the maxim sola scriptura, the question we have to ask ourselves now is, when deciding whether a church is a godly one or not, where do we go to tell us how we decide? And the answer is the Bible, because all scripture is inspired by God. And what does the Bible tell us? What does the great book on the church, the book of Ephesians, tell us in the New Testament? That the main thing a church must do is to teach sound Christian doctrine. The main thing a church must do is to teach sound Christian doctrine. 
teaching sound Christian doctrine is the main thing and what the church does is the main thing. As long as the church is doing that and is faithful to the Word of God, then you have a biblical church. It could be a big church. It could be a small church. You could have three people in the church. You could have 300,000. All of the other stuff is irrelevant. But at the end of the day, at its core, that is what God has called His house to do, to preach and teach the Word. So if we now as Christians in the 21st century were to solely and exclusively judge the blessedness or the godliness or whether a ministry is of God or not simply by what we see, that is not a biblical worldview. We have to discern that ministry based upon what we hear. If what they are preaching is teaching is from the infallible, inerrant Word of God. And to even double down on that point even further, in the book of Revelation, Jesus gives seven messages to seven churches. He has negative things to say about five of the churches, which already tells us something. That the churches that existed at the time, of seven of them, Jesus gives negative remarks to five of them. He only has positive things to say about two churches, the church at Smyrna and the church at Philadelphia. And what was characteristic of those churches? That number one, they were afflicted, they were a persecuted church, and the other, that it was a church of little power. In fact, the church at Laodicea, that was the church that was the most economically prosperous. That was the church that using natural gauges of success, they were the most blessed. But what did Jesus tell that church? He said, you are lukewarm, and for anyone who is lukewarm, I will spit out of my mouth. Okay, here's the final question we're going to talk about today. And I purposely chose a question that's gray so we can have an idea of when we are now faithfully navigating life, living by the maxim sola scriptura, how are we now going to apply it? Knowing there are some things in life that are gray and Christians can faithfully and peaceably not agree on. Romans 14. So here's my final question. Does the Bible permit a Christian to drink alcohol? Does the Bible permit a Christian to drink alcohol? Now, in looking for an answer to this question, if we live by the maxim sola scriptura, how will we find an answer? We're not going to simply rely on what we've been told. We're not going to simply rely on what other folks do in our church. We're not going to simply rely on what another person says. We're going to go to the Bible. We're going to go to the Word of God because all Scripture is inspired by God and Scripture is the final ultimate authority. So, does the Bible permit a Christian to drink alcohol? Here's the first thing that we consider. Does the Bible ever give an explicit positive command that says drink alcohol? It doesn't. What the Bible does time and time again is it gives a stern rebuke and a command not to be drunk. So overall, we now have a general guideline that we can use to interpret reality, that the Bible never says drink wine, never says that. But what it does do is it warns us 
not to become drunk. So if you now, a person, knowing those two simple Bible facts, simply decide that you're going to electively not drink alcohol, my response to you would be, yay and amen. And let's add more weight to that argument, because in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, the Apostle Paul gives the apostolic command not to get drunk. The same idea is reiterated in Galatians chapter 5, verse 21. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul writes that drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God, and drunkenness in general in the Old Testament is often synonymous with being under judgment because drunkenness now is a spiritual indicator that someone simply does what feels good to their flesh and doesn't sit under the authority of God. But then now let's consider the alternative view that drinking alcohol is biblically permissible. What Paul actually advises Timothy to do in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, is to drink a little bit of wine to settle, his uns- to settle his stomach. In the book of Numbers, it talks about a Nazarite vow or a vow that someone would undertake in a special period of consecration to God. And in that vow, it talks about someone ceasing from drinking wine. And the only way someone would have to cease from drinking wine is if, in the normal state of day-to-day affairs, they were drinking wine. Psalm number 104, verse 15 says the following, And wine, which makes man's heart glad, so that he may make his face glisten with oil, and food, which sustains man's heart. Psalm number 4, verse 7 says the following, You have put gladness in my heart, more than when their grain and new wine abound. In John chapter 2, in the first recorded miracle of Jesus Christ during his public ministry, what was the miracle? In the wedding at Cana, he turned water into wine. And we know from the account that people who were at the wedding actually began drinking the wine. Now, there are many Bible scholars who I highly regard and respect who say that back then, the alcohol composition of wine was less than it is now. And they probably are right, but that still does not dismiss the fact that they were consuming alcohol. And let us not forget, church, that in the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, he advised them, rather, he admonished them for abusing the Lord's Supper because particular individuals were what? They were getting drunk while celebrating communion, which tells us what? That it was normal back then for wine to be available. So when we allow the whole to interpret the part, what do we have? We see the Bible never says drink alcohol, but it does warn us not to get drunk. So if you now were a Christian looking and examining the text, you you would be faithfully reasonable in saying, I'm going to avoid all errors. I'm going to avoid the temptation. I'm simply not going to drink alcohol, to which I would say, yay and amen. You could also look at all those texts and say, it's clearly evident that God has given us a freedom 
and that wine is something which can be consumed and can give us a positive benefit, but it can't be abused. It can't be overconsumed, just like food, which can make us obese. So then you can now come to the informed biblical conclusion that you are going to now, in moderation, drink wine. To which I would say, yay and amen. And then two individuals now can amicably and peacefully come to two different conclusions, knowing that the Bible has provided a gray area and those two individuals now will never be united in the lie, but rather they will be divided in truth. One person will say the Bible is gray, I'll go this way. The other person says the Bible is gray, I'll go that way. And at the end of the day, both individuals realize that even if they disagree on this issue, it has nothing to do with salvation. It has nothing to do with the core tenets of the Christian faith. It has nothing to do with God's plan for the church. And it has nothing to do with how their choices will impact others. But certainly, what these two individuals can never do is fall into legalism and say, because I have chosen to do this, now everyone else must. Or, because I have chosen not to do this, now we're gonna make a rule that everyone in the church must also not drink alcohol as well. That would now actually be a quenching, a enshacklement of Christian liberty and putting people into bondage. Church, there are a lot of superficial things the people of God simply will not agree on. But the one thing that is crystal clear is that the church of God is never one in error. We can never seek a tolerance of the flesh where we will now be unified, but we are unified in the lie. If you go to a mosque, if you go to a Hindu temple, you know what you're going to find? A lot of unity, a lot of oneness. But that unity doesn't mean anything if there's unification in a lie. The people of God, if you show me any church, no one is ever going to agree on everything. And that is fine because the people of God can be divided in the truth. What they will never be unified in is a lie. And we know if something is a lie or not, if it contradicts the word of God. Because sola scriptura. Because all scripture is inspired by God. So church, the Bible matters because it is the word of God. The Bible matters because it is the supreme, the ultimate, and the final authority on all spiritual matters. And when we're reading the Bible, when we're allowing the Word of God to speak to us and to transform us, we remember that faithful interpreters of the Bible always allow the whole to interpret the part, meaning we never take one itty-bitty thing God says and ignore everything else and then live by that teeny-tiny part while ignoring the whole. We always read the Bible in the literal sense in which it was written. So if we're reading history, we read it like history. If we read poetry, we read it like poetry. And if there are areas of the Bible that are not clear, we use the parts of the Bible that are clear to give us clarity about that which is foggy. 
we always take Bible questions and doctrinal matters very seriously, and we never approach the Word of God with a brash, flippant attitude. And we always know that God's truth never changes. There are no new doctrines. There are no new revelations. What God has said is settled in heaven forever, and there's no new truth. What God has said is sufficient, and it's complete. And the final thing I'll say about Bible interpretation is this. What I found is what triggers someone's spiritual growth is never to search the Bible and try to reinforce what you already know. It's to actually try and disprove an idea. It's to actually try and dismantle a doctrinal belief by searching the scriptures and accumulating contrary evidence. Because if you're always doing that, you never settle. You never get comfortable and you're always trying to scrutinize your tightly held beliefs and what the Bible will show us time and time again is it's very repetitive. So if you try to challenge a core doctrinal idea like Jesus is God, you will quickly find that the scriptures are saturated with the doctrinal belief that Jesus is the Son of God, He is the Messiah, and that we are saved by faith in Him alone. So if you now try to disprove that idea, you will quickly discover what the truth really is. I will close, beloved, by reiterating the simple fact. The Bible matters because it's God's Word. And the more we listen to God's Word, and the less we listen to culture, the less we listen to ourselves, and the more we simply say, Lord, here I am, open my ears, open my mind, open my heart, and remove the cloudy windows of misunderstanding from my eyes. By His grace, He will hear us, the Holy Spirit will teach us, and as truth will transform us by the renewing of our minds. God bless you. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.